Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 204, and today's guest is Ty Harris, CEO and co-founder of OpenLane. Imagine that you've worked your way into an executive leadership position with one of the top insurance companies where you're overseeing an organization of hundreds of people generating billions of dollars, yet you realize that you are a builder and there's an opportunity to build a company around an idea. So what do you do? Do you stay at the safety net of the Fortune 500 company or do you take the risk and start something from scratch? Well, obviously, if Ty is a guest of this podcast, you probably know the decision he made and it is a decision that is taking off. Openly is reinventing home insurance with a different approach with an emphasis on tech and improved customer service experience and a very smart sales model where they are partnering with independent insurance agents. The company announced $40 million in funding back in December and this is fresh off the heels of announcing $15 million just six months prior. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Ty's experience at MIT and how he got involved in competitive ballroom dancing his career progression at Liberty Mutual, where he was most recently EVP and Chief Product Officer, how he thought through the decision to move on and start a company, all the details on Openly and how they are disrupting the insurance industry, what the future holds for Openly, including their growth and hiring plans, advice for senior level executives on making the decision and leap of faith to start a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, whenever someone asks me who are the fastest growing tech companies, I simply direct them to the Companies tab on VentureFizz. From there, you can do a virtual tour of the tech scene and explore hundreds of companies. From each company page, you'll learn everything you need to know about the company, including their job openings, culture, and so much more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash companies to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ty. Ty, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we've got a lot to talk about. So Openly just announced a new round of funding, which just off the heels of raising capital six months prior. So there's a lot going on with Openly, which is super exciting. But before we get into that, anytime I'm kind of doing my research on somebody, I always love it when I find just that nugget that is super unique and interesting about a person. And when I found out that you were a competitor, for the MIT ballroom dance competition that lit me up. I'm like, wow. Okay. So talk about that. How did you get into ballroom dancing and how would you re- relate that? You know, cause it's such a unique thing to do. It require, it just seems like it would require so much practice, um, endurance, strength, uh, and just commitment, right. To compete for that, that, that type of uh, activity or so talk about that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, uh, I've tried to expunge all those records from the interwebs, but unsuccessfully. So, <laughs> no, it was, you know, I, I was at MIT for grad school doing working on a PhD in economics, and um, I probably shouldn't have had any spare time, but I, I somehow decided I did have some. And so I spent it learning to ballroom dance there. And it's funny, they kind of, it hooks you in. They take these, you know, these summer classes where you want to dance at a wedding or whatnot. And then if you're a person like me, who can get really serious about hobbies, then it kind of, this happens to other people too, the vortex kind of draws you in and you get drawn to this whole world of ballroom dancing that most people are not aware of at all. But, um, you know, long story short, I, I did it for, you know, probably six or eight years. Um, and it got, it gets really serious, you know, by, I was practicing probably 10 or 15 hours a week, which, you know, when you have a real job and it's not your actual profession is, is a lot for a hobby. Um, I did 10 different dances. So I was, uh, you know, you compete in foxtrot and waltz and tango and cha-cha and, you know, all these different dances. And it's, 
it's funny because MIT is not, you wouldn't think of it as a, a sports powerhouse and it's, it's not really good at kind of the big name sports you would think of, but it's really good at some of these weird little sports like, uh, like pistol shooting. I think they're good at and ballroom dancing. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Um, when I, you know, had a full-time job and, and kids that eventually brought sort of an end to that, uh, reign of, of competition. But I, the, the things that I would say are uh, applicable to the world of entrepreneurship, there's a few things. One is it takes a long time before you're decent at it, right? So you're just you're just awful <laughs> for a while. And like, it really takes a lot of time to get the thing up and running, which I think is certainly analogous to our company if you look at our path. Um, I think that early on, you can actually think you're better at it than you are. So when people are first starting a bar dance, like, oh, I know how to do this step. You're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, you can do that step, but you're doing it completely wrong. It's all about the art of how you do it, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, I, I'd say the other thing is that your friends just absolutely don't understand what you're up to. So <laughs> I, you know, I would try and tell my friends and family, oh yeah, I'm going to go spend some more time ballroom dancing. They're like, what are you talking about? Um, and starting a company is a, a similar thing. They just can't, it's very hard for people who haven't done it to relate to what it's really like to, to go from zero to something as, as part of a company. But perseverance, you said it, you know, at the beginning of perseverance is certainly a part of either one. You have to be willing to just keep banging your head against a wall when you hit a plateau or, or whatnot and, and just have trust that you will kind of get through it on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, people have grown an appreciation with it, uh, with, you know, dancing with the stars and you see kind of what the, the celebrities go through and, you know, how bad some are and how, you know, gifted some are like the gymnasts and the athletes that tend to do better on that show. So I, I just wonder, like, you must watch that show and just like critique everybody. Well, yeah, it's funny. We, um, one of my early instructors was on the very first season. Um, she was, uh, the partner of the actor from Seinfeld, who I think played Mr. Peterman, but, uh, and they got second place. So we were like really following that season. It was really, really early in my career. Uh, and after that, I watched a little bit of it. Um, watch some other dance shows. I actually like dance shows where the people are professionals who have been doing it for their whole life instead of just starting. So uh, we, we tend to watch some of those as well, um, just to see like beautiful ballet dancers or people from other, you know, hip hop or other traditions. But, uh, but yeah, so. But it is, it does kind of jade you to, to watching it. I will say, you know, if you're like at a wedding, you know, you might see people dancing and if you're, it's, it, it's kind of ruined you for like watching people dance when you've seen the best people in the world do a waltz or something. And then some people are waltzing at a wedding and everyone's like, oh, that's great. Like, yeah, that's great and all, but like, it's not, you know, Luca and Lorraine from Italy. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a worthy effort. You tried. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, let's, let's rewind the clock. So um, where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, my father was a, an airline pilot for Delta Airlines. And so that was sort of what I, drew us to that uh, hub. And, you know, I was an only child. Uh, when people ask me about my brothers and sisters, I always, I used to at least say I had dogs and they look at me kind of funny, like, you think that's the same thing? And I didn't really know, but I, now I know it's not, you know. Um, I, would, I, was, I was really a curious kid. I was pretty academic, you know, so I was good at all the various academic things. Um, I didn't know a lot about entrepreneurship growing up. Uh, you know, it's, my parents were amazing and really sought to get me educated in various ways, but I just didn't have a lot of connections to people who had started businesses. So I, you know, at that age, I sort of saw success as, you know, great academics or, you know, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, whatever, some kind of a profession. But I didn't even think about this option open to you of, oh, you could actually just start your own thing completely. Um, I, you know, uh, I was, let's see what else I was, you know, in high school, I was on the debate team. I, I was a runner, which I, I still like to run a fair bit. Um, and I was on the debate team. I was very serious about that as well. That's kind of, again, one of those weird things like ballroom dancing where you're 
you just put an ungodly amount of time into it. You spend all summer at camp doing it and prepare. And there's like, and then, you know, you do these tournaments and you're up for like a week straight with 10 cases of evidence that you carry around. And it's, people don't understand what's on the outside, but it's a lot of fun when you're doing it. So. And then where'd you go to college? Yeah, I went to uh, Duke University for undergrad, which was awesome. Um, had a lot of great friends there, it, you know, not, not too far from Atlanta, not quite West Coast or anything like that. Um, and yeah, then I, I went from Duke to, uh, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years out of Duke. I went to the Brookings Institution there. I was a research assistant in uh, what they call economic studies there. So I was working for, it's kind of like being in an academic department, um, just without the teaching in a sense. And so I did great research there, had some great mentors, just learned a lot about the possibilities of the academic world. Um, you know, I'd say at, at Duke, it was kind of a well-balanced education, but you weren't, again, you were kind of pushed toward like professions more so than the academic world. And then uh, going to Brookings really was like, oh, wow, there's this whole academic world out there. You could go study these things for your whole life, which is uh, kind of what actually pushed me to my next step um, when, I, when I came up to Boston. Well, the, I did have an opportunity to visit the Duke campus about a year ago, which was just beautiful. I was just down in that area. So I went to UNC and Duke and just beautiful down there as far as the campus. And it just happened to be the time when all the tents were set up because the students were waiting to get their tickets for the UNC game, which that was a whole new appreciation of what goes into getting into the arena for that particular game. Yeah. It, was, it was awesome to see. Oh, there's a whole process. It's like a they set up, at least when I was there, there was this entire market structure set up around these tents. There were, I remember you could have 10 people in a tent and there were 150 tents total. And if you, you know, if you missed your tent check, you got bumped to the back of the line and like you could miss as a tent as a whole or an individual could miss and then they're just kicked out of the tent. And it was just in the last 48 hours, it gets extra intense. I think they've probably changed some of that because it would put a serious dent in your academic life to be out in your tent all the time. But uh no, it was, it was, it's it was still going cool on. Like it was, they were all manned. And if you are, if it's, there's someone, someone has to be in a tent. And if the tent check is done and you're not there or no one's manning the tent, you're, you are kicked out or bumped to the end. It was, so they, they told us the whole thing. I'm sure with COVID, it, well, you know, the basketball season was kind of weird this yeah, year anyways. Virtual but, tents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, in normal years, it's still alive and tent well. gets bumped or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so what led you down the path of pursuing a PhD? Yeah, I, again, so I was at Brookings and I was just around these amazing uh, people there. One, you know, I, I studied with a, a couple of Georges there, George Perry, George Akerlof, the later, the latter of which actually ended up winning a Nobel Prize for some of the stuff he did. And I was just being immersed in that environment of, of academics and papers and ideas was, was amazing. And that really helped, you know, kind of aim me toward the academic world. Um, and I went from there up to MIT. So I applied to a bunch of schools, ended up going to MIT. And it was really cool. I mean, I was in this class with like, I don't know, 20 people from all around the world. You know, I think there were maybe two or three Americans, but just, you know, Australia and France and, you know, just all kinds of countries around the world who, who were in, in this small class. Um, and it was a, a lot of, it was really intense and a lot of fun. And I, uh, I the, the end result of it for me was I went through, I did all the coursework and ended up deciding at the end of the coursework that while I loved learning this stuff, I actually didn't want to spend the rest of my life, uh, you know, writing that kind of research. And it was a, it was a decision that I made kind of slowly. I, 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 I didn't quite tell myself or admit to myself that I had made that decision um, for, for a little while, but I, I kind of slowly started edging over into more of the business world and exploring things over there and telling myself that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to balance the two. And I think at some point I just said, you know what, this, this 
the business world is is where I want to be. But I still, I, I definitely have some academic leaning hobbies and skunk works things that I, I still get drawn into sometimes. Great. So, so what did you do after that? Yeah. So I went from there. Um, I so I was studying economics and in particular finance and market microstructure theory, which is all about how information is propagated in, in little markets and uncertainty. And so based on that, it seemed like in the business world, the two things that interested me were casinos. I was like, I was actually playing a lot of poker at the time as well, but I thought, hey, how do people make decisions under uncertainty, right? And then also insurance. Insurance was just fascinating to an economist because it's all about evaluating people's preferences and what kinds of risks will they bear versus what they won't. And so I looked at those two and I said, well, there's an insurance company just down the street at you know Liberty Mutual in Boston, whereas I'd have to go to Vegas to go to some casino or I don't know, Foxwood. So I, uh, that I, I not quite by chance, but ended up saying, hey, let me try this insurance thing and went um, and applied to be a beginning actuarial analyst at Liberty Mutual in Boston. And, you know, eventually got in. Um, as they say, I had to take a few of these actuarial exams to to start to kind of get my nose under the tent there. Um, and then, yeah, was off to the races, was there for a number of years. It was, it was great. So it was about like, it was about 12 years, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, that's right. 12 and a half years I was there. I, uh, and I came in as a, like I said, a beginning actuarial student and in my early days there, a lot of it was, you know, as an individual analyst doing all kinds of quantitative oriented work around home and auto insurance, you know, the pricing models, the underwriting models, things like that. And I was also studying for these actuarial exams. So to be an actuary, you have to pass, I think at the time it was nine of these big exams you take. So in my weekends, I'd be studying for these exams to get that designation. And then, you know, during the week doing the actual job of, of, of working there. And it was great. I got, I became an actuary over time. I gradually, took on management, which was a big step for me. I didn't think, you know, early on, I didn't think I'd ever want to manage people. Why would you want to manage people? Why wouldn't you just be stuck in, you know, doing your work and in your, the world of ideas? And eventually kind of warmed up to that idea. I had a great mentor there who really helped me uh, do that in the early days when I was absolutely terrible at it, like probably most many people are at least. Then gradually expanded responsibility, uh, worked up through the company. And when I left, I was the chief product and underwriting officer for their personal lines of business worldwide. So for home and auto insurance and other things that a person as opposed to a business would buy, the types of insurance you as a person would buy. Uh, I was running the, you know, the underwriting aspect of that. The, what does the insurance contract say? How do we price it? Who do we let through the door to have this insurance versus who do we don't? How do we work with the state regulators? All those types of things was, was under me. And it was a great job. Um, it was tough to leave. <laughs> that, but that's a massive organization. So from what I gathered, it was 800 plus people, you know, and that's $18 billion in premiums. So, so talk about running a, like that level of an organization. Well, it's funny when I was in, when, when I first started in business and you told me as an individual contributor, you know, someday you're going to have 800 people and, and all this, it, it, it seems impossible. You don't understand because what you don't understand is like that as you, go higher up, you are increasingly your job is to find great people, not to have all the ideas. And that's obvious once you've been around business, but it's not obvious when you first enter a company. So, you know, when you're, you're running an 800 person organization, it's almost entirely about, you know, finding great people, about always knowing the other talent out there at this 50,000 person company, about having an idea of how to structure your organization so that there's the right level of efficiency and ownership and there's, there's no perfect organization in the world. And it's this constant battle between those those two forces in my mind as, as you continuously think about structuring your organization and the, and the 
responsibilities that you give people. So it's really an interesting, it's an interesting problem. Um, that, and that was basically the, you know, the last third of my time at Liberty was almost entirely that, just thinking about the organization and the people and the reorg. And we were always merging things together. So we merged, you know, the Safeco brand in, and then it was international combining with domestic. And then there was always something going on that required you to kind of restructure your organization in some way. And it was a fun, it was a fun problem to work on. And I had great people and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, Liberty Mutual is just, you know, a flagship organization in the Boston area. And I like how they have a national brand too. If, you know, their commercials, I think are very creative. Uh, I think it, it seems like all the insurance companies have very creative insurance, like, like commercials. That must be a thing. Well, <laughs> you know, we're getting into the, the thing is that um, insurance customer acquisition is a very noisy and expensive business. And so, you know, if you look out there, you say all the insurance companies have brands, but there's actually hundreds of insurance companies. If you, if you just sampled all the insurance companies that people have homeowners insurance from in the U.S. There's literally hundreds, and you probably know, I don't know five of them, right? I mean, and those are the ones with the big brands. So it's a it's a it's really a nuts market in some way where you have a few carriers that have chosen, like you said, to pursue this strategy of having a big brand, and maybe that you know makes them direct and customers call a call center or whatnot. But then you've got these just hundreds of other carriers that are selling in different ways without spending anything on on branding. So it's a a marvelously complex. Uh, ecosystem of insurance companies. But yes, Liberty did have a, a great brand and it was really evolving during the time I was there. You know, when I first went there, I would say it was uh, in the transition from being a, you know, Liberty's over a hundred year old company. In the early days, it was very much a commercially oriented company and, and personal lines of insurance were more of a, a recent thing in a way. And I think, you know, you see that even over the last 10 years, you've seen that transition from, well, in commercial insurance, you know, maybe you don't need that huge brand that, you know, um, billions of our millions of eyeballs see whereas when you're in personal insurance you do need that um and at least if you're pursuing their model so. all right so what led you down the path of entrepreneurship to start a company openly oh boy yeah it's um i you know there's some people who sit back and say i just saw this mission and this you know what the world should be like and it was so inspiring that even despite my personal circumstances, what was going to make me happy, I just did it anyway. And I, I wish I could say that. I think for me, it was partly a realization that as much as I loved the, the people at, at Liberty and, and working with that great group of people, I really wanted to, I'm happiest when I'm building something. That was true even within Liberty Mutual. My, so my happiest times were when I was building a brand new X. X could be a new rating model or a new you know, state where we're building it out or new whatever. And so I wanted to spend more of my time building new things from, from nothing and that creative invention stage and less of my time maintaining a big thing defensively. And that's not, I don't know, to cast no aspersions on defending something big. It's a, it, plenty of importance in doing that, but I just wanted to spend more of my time building. And so given that, I mean, I, I certainly also see a lot of huge opportunities in insurance. I mean, it just, if you zoom out to the very highest level, you've got this you know, trillion dollar industry, depending on how you want to count, where about 40% of the money that people pay every year is going toward administrative expense. So you think about that. It's like you know, 60% of the money goes to things like claims and profit from the insurance company. About 40% goes to just running the insurance company. It's like if you gave to a charity and 40% of the money went to running the charity, or if you contribute to your 401k and 40% of the money went to admin fees and 60% went into your actual investments. And so that, you know, that is that's the thing that ultimately gets me. That's the thing that needs to be solved at the, in the in the big big picture. And there's lots of paths that kind of lead or theories of how you solve that. But you know, there's demand. There's like pulling approaches to that where you say, well, just give consumers more transparent choice. Let them, you know, create 
a more competitive environment for insurance and that will naturally push, you know, pull companies toward lower expense. There's push approaches where you say, well, here's a better way to structure the industry. I think you should do it this way. And that will create these synergies and, you know, reduce costs. But however you approach it, you've got to approach it with that in mind. Um, I'd say the other problem, so high cost, the other big problem out there is that despite all that cost, people often still don't have the insurance that they they want or that they, more importantly, that they think they have. So they're, you know, they, their house burns down or they have a flood and they just don't, you know, think they have coverage and it, it ends somewhere or they don't have the coverage they think. And that's, both of those are attributable in my mind to a sort of complexity that the industry has built up over time. Um, and it's both need to be solved. And so combining wanting to, to start something with this vision of, hey, we really need to solve these things. That's a big problem. That's, that's what made me take the leap. Okay, so so what is Openly? Yeah, Openly is a brand new home insurance company. Um, it's homeowners insurance right now. It will ultimately branch into other types of insurance that a, a person would buy, auto insurance, boat insurance, things like that. Probably not business insurance, um, but you never know. And you say, well, there's, I just said, there's hundreds of insurance companies. So, you know, why do we need a new one? Um, and Openly is different in a few ways. Um, in terms of what makes it possible, it is heavily enabled by technological things that are, are possible today that were maybe not possible 10 or 20 years ago um, in terms of how we're able to immediately get data about a home or immediately get data about you, the homeowner, or about your location and put it through sophisticated risk prediction models that are able to really quickly and accurately assess the risk of, of different homes to you know insurance risk. That's kind of what's under the hood. Um, but then you say, well, why do I care as a consumer or, or whatever? What, what, why, is, why is Openly better for me? And there's a couple of ways in which it manifests. One is that it, we've actually made the insurance itself better. So I give the example a second ago, if your house burns down, you don't have enough coverage um, you, and you discover that. Well, with Openly, that actually really can't happen um, because the way that we have redesigned the insurance contract itself is says that if your house is destroyed, no matter what we or you estimated the cost of your house when you bought the insurance, we're going to replace your house up to $5 million. And that's that's a totally different approach to insurance. Most insurance companies make you guess at the outset. Oh yeah, it costs $143,000 and my house burned down. You're wrong. Oops, sorry, 200,000, you're out of luck. With us, we say no matter what. And we can do that because there's this data where we know everything about that house. We don't, we, your guess about how much your house is worth is not that valuable to us anymore because we know what the roof looks like and what the slope is and what the shingles are like and what the bathrooms are like and all these things about your house. We, we can kind of figure that out and price it appropriately behind the scenes for the risk that it represents. So that's just one example. The coverage is better. And the second big advantage is that it's just much easier to interact with. So um, either as a consumer or getting into a detail about the company, we actually distribute, we sell the product through this network of independent agents. For, for them, it is they can get to a sellable quote in about 10 seconds. So if you called an agent, they wanted to quote openly, they'd need your name, date of birth and address. And with that information in 10 seconds, they could say, here's your price for this home. And that's not a like teaser price, that's a real price. And that is just about unheard of in the industry. For, with others, it could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks after you get some inspection back before you know if you're even gonna get insurance. Whereas with us, it's, it's almost instant. So those two things, better coverage and really fast are the two core building blocks of what makes it better. So how, how do you know so much about homes? Like where, how are you getting the data on that and the ability to create that quote in 10 seconds? Yeah, look, it's um, there, 
there is lots of data out there now, right? So you just think about all the data about the house coming from all kinds of sources. If you've ever, the house has ever been listed on MLS or if someone's gone into Zillow and updated it or, you know, some county record or some, you know, roofer did a, you know, replaced the shingles and had to file a permit a few years ago. All these data sources are out there. Um, and what's happening over the last few years is that they're getting to the point where the gaps are sort of filled in and you can, with, you know, pretty decent reliability, get all the data you need about a house, but it's still super messy. And so part of the problem is taking all that data. I've got three different sources about the you know, square footage, which one do I trust? And what if they disagree? And just figuring out what to do with that big ball of data in an intelligent way, that's a lot of the IP that we've built is sorting through all that. Um, and that's about the house. It's also about the person, about their, their you know, maybe their prior claims history and other things about the person themselves that are predictive of insurance loss. And then things about the location. So all the things that I can tie now to a, you know, the exact elevation of your front door, your, you know, the everything that's going on in your neighborhood. I mean, all these things can be tied down um, to your to your house and to you at this point if you build uh, the the algorithms that wade through all that data, which is what we've done. You could also there the other development is there are now better and better models of using that data to predict the risk of a home, something happening to a home and having a loss. And so the combination of sort of what you would think of as like ML type models and that that data coming together make it possible to, to get to that immediate prediction of risk where it wasn't possible 10 years ago. So how'd you meet your, your co-founder, Matt? Yeah, so our, um, our wives, well, the people who are now our wives were actually friends the very, I think the first day of undergrad at MIT. They were on a bus together and they both have sort of Russian heritage. And so they got talking about a conversation and anyhow, uh, you know, as, as they became friends, eventually uh, they, we were with them and they introduced us to each other. And so Matt and I, we've known each other for gosh, about 15 years now. And we've been, we've, you know, we've been friends, not the kind of friends who see each other every day, but you know, the friends who would see each other through our mutual connection of our, of our wives at uh, you know, maybe we'd go on a ski trip together or see each other and, uh, you know, occasionally, and, um, you know, we became closer and closer friends over time. And we would always, have, you know, I have lots of friends. I don't start businesses with all of them. But, you know, Matt is, as we would talk about business and the world, and it, we just had all of these alignments on the way that we saw the world and what's possible. And, you know, our approach to things are kind of, I think, kind of curious scientific approach to things. And, you know, Matt was highly successful in, in several things he had done uh, before openly. Both He also had a corporate ex- job at Goldman Sachs for years and then went from that to some entrepreneurial things. And so, um, you know, we talked about it more and more and eventually decided to kind of take the leap together. But entrepreneurial in the insurance industry. So there's perfect match of the two of you coming together. And I would imagine that caught the interest of investors early on because you have two people that have had different paths in the insurance industry coming together because what you're building is incredibly complex. And it's in a highly regulated industry and it's state by state. So investors are usually probably like, whoa, I'm not touching that. But then when they see the backgrounds of what the two of you have accomplished, I would imagine it kind of, you know, piqued a lot of interest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it it cuts both ways a little bit. I think it mostly cuts for you to have industry experience. Um, And I think in insure tech in particular, investors kind of learned over time as they watched various investments that, you know, even if you're really good at the technology part, if, if you're not as experienced at the insurance part, you can mess that up and, and it kind of messes up the whole company. So I think there, there has been an increasing interest in, in that. Um, but it sometimes cuts the other way, honestly. I, I've had investors tell me, oh, you're, you know, you, you're too close to it. Um, you know, you're not, 
you're not going to have the same fresh perspective and, and hunger that somebody who's you know 22 out of college and has never been in the industry. But that that it, it's a positive. I, I mean, I certainly think it's a positive. I you know we can if, if you were to pick some random person off the street or some random person who's been an executive insurance company, probably neither of them would be the perfect person to you know start a insure tech business. But I think you'd have a better luck with the insurance exec than the random person. I I would agree. It's a very complex industry, and it's you can't just set up a, a flagpole and say, we're going to start an insurance company and the likelihood of that being successful, we think would be very, very, you know, working against you now. Well, the- it's irreducibly complex. So that's the hardest thing about insurance it, to me is that it's, there's so many businesses where you can do a, you can want do one thing. Great. That's what everyone tells you when you're in, you know, tech stars, say, you know, do figure out the one little part of this is going to work and then go test it at a small scale. But with insurance, right. it's not like you can say, well, we have this great rating model. So we're going to go start writing insurance. But if someone has a claim, we don't have any money and we don't have a claims right. organization and we can't take their money. It, no, no, you have to have a complete organization day one before you can sell the first policy, which is why it took us a couple of years from founding the company to getting to market, which was kind of a tough, tough period, to be honest. But You can't really spin up a, a quick MVP with a shingle like landing page website, see if we get any consumers interested in buying your insurance. So, so now the other thing that's very interesting is, you know, you probably have a lot of insure tech companies that are out there like, we're going to disrupt the industry. We're going to go direct to consumer, right? You chose to work through agents, which personally, I, I still like dealing with an agent just because you have that peace of mind that you're making the right decisions. And uh, you know, hearing your model maybe might alleviate some of that of just we're covering your house because otherwise I don't know what I'm buying for insurance direct to, you know, if I'm bu- buying direct from the carrier. So, so what was the decision, the thought of that decision versus we're disrupting the agent business, you know? Yeah, we've, we, look, we've made two decisions, which I think are a little contrary to the way others have gone. One is like you say, we're going through agents as opposed to direct to consumers. Um, and the other decision actually, we're going a little toward people with somewhat complex needs. So single family homeowners, as opposed to say renters or like low limit auto customers, where it's really not that much product variation. Where, with ours, there, there is legitimate product variation. Do you have you know, paintings in your house that need to be separately insured? Do you have a dock across the street that maybe wouldn't be covered by your policy? You gotta, you know, so there are complexities. Um, but the choice to go through agents, there's the strategic aspect of it to me, which is that that's where the world is headed. And you say, well, that seems nuts. Why would you say that the world? But what we mean by an agent is any entity that offers choice to a consumer among multiple uh, insurance carriers. So to us, you know, the kayak of insurance is in some sense a digital insurance agency. And that's fine. We'll work with, you know, the kayaks of insurance out there. We'll present our product, you know, to them and they can present it digitally if they'd like to. Um, we'll also work with traditional agents who are very local and human driven and they present their product, you know, through a person, <laughs> through, through an expert who talks to the consumer. Now, empirically right now, it is mostly most people do want to talk to a person. And I think that's the right answer for most people. It's certainly how I tell my, you know, my relatives, I would not tell them to just buy online. You don't know for sure what you're getting. And, it, you know, I, now the world may get to the point where robo advice is so great in insurance that you don't need to talk to a person. And, you know, I, sure, I welcome that. And we'll be right there. Our product is perfectly suited to work in a, you know, kind of robo agent environment as well as a, a human agent environment when that is ready. The reason to go through agents, though, is that from a business perspective, you're effectively splitting the customer acquisition cost with others. So if I go out there and get an insurance customer, it is extremely expensive because I'm up against Geico and Liberty Mutual and State Farm, all of these, their TV commercials. And, and most of the time, I'm not going to sell them anything because my product won't be the right fit. And so by going through an agent, 
the agent almost always has a product for that consumer. And I, I kind of pay the acquisition cost when my product is the right one. And I don't have to pay it when someone else's product is the right one, which makes it a much more efficient model for a, especially for a startup like us. Yeah. So instead of having this massive marketing budget, which is the majority of where that venture capital money would be spent, you're instead, you know, building these partnerships with the agents, whether it's digital or in person. And I assume, you know, that marketing spend would be going towards that customer acquisition cost that they're inheriting almost like more like a commission or however that works, like a, like a sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're, you're paying Exactly. We're paying to sort of acquire these agents in the first place to convince them that they want to work with us, um, which is an, an easier sell uh, than convincing a consumer that they want to work with you because the agents actually know. But the, the big, the other big thing is the product matters a lot more because agents are, they do this every day. And so they understand what's a great insurance product and what's not. So trying to convince consumers, hey, this guaranteed replacement cost, if your house burned down, it wouldn't be covered. That's that's kind of an uphill battle to convince them it's a better product because all most consumers just they don't know how mind share for that. Whereas an agent does have mind share for that. You can say, Hey, look, if you sell our product to consumer and something terrible happens to their house and they get better, you know, they're, it's actually rebuilt as opposed to their tricked, you know, as with someone else, that's gonna be a much better experience for your agency. And the agent has time to think about that and to get that. So they're the right people to go to. If you have a, a great product, I would say. Yeah. I think it's smart. Cause it's, uh, you know, unfortunately I did get in a small car accident a couple years ago and it was great to have the insurance agent that I could call that I trust. He does our homeowners insurance, you know, so he does the whole client portfolio and you just know he's good at what he does. He's fair. And he helped me when I needed his help. So I, I do like that versus kind of buying from the unknown and just hoping it works out in the end. Now you, yeah, yeah. you just announced a $40 million series B and this was six months after raising your series a. Uh, so, you know, talk about where you guys are at now with the business um, you know, hiring growth plans ahead. Yeah. So we, um, we're really excited. It wasn't something we were expecting. Um, you know, I think we raised our series a back in June and we were kind of excited to just put our heads down and, and build for a while, but we had a, a great investor advanced venture partners come along. And actually the, the partner there was a consumer of ours. She found us through, she was looking for home insurance, found an agent who, who recommended us and then was kind of interested in, they ended up coming in. We had, we just really hit it off with them. They ended up sort of effectively preempting our our Series B, and it was, um, you know, I think the reason is that they were able to see where this company is going to be in, you know, nine months, and say, hey, we we want to <laughs> invest there, um, and that that was exciting for us. Um, but where where we're headed, you know, when we, gosh, when we when we launched, we were a, a ten or twelve person company a year ago. Really, really, really lean. Um, since our Series A, Series A, we were probably 30 people back in June. We're now 45 people. So already we've, you know, plus 50% of the company. And we will likely be, you know, a, a 100 to 150 person company at the end of 2021. Now that's a broad range. It depends on how, you know, how things go over 2021. There's still some uncertainty, but um, the big expansion dimensions for us are one, to take it to more states. So we're in uh, six states as of right now, and there's no reason this can't go to every state and be successful. So, but that's a, a lift because every state is regulated differently and it's, you know, et cetera. So there's that. Um, there are features we need to add to our product that to make it work with, you know, tens of millions of dollars of premium as opposed to, you know, millions of dollars of premium. It's just, there's certain things that work at a small scale that don't work at a bigger scale. And so we need to build those. And then, you know, longer term, we'll be adding products. So once we've uh, gone to lots of, lots more states and lots more agencies to sell the product and lots of features, then it's say, well, 
you know, lots of people who buy home insurance also need auto insurance or boat insurance or umbrella, you know, so we'll be adding products. So there's just a lot of dimensions to continue scaling this business over the next few years to make it really enormous. And where do you expect like hiring, like what type of job functions? Jeez, everything. We, uh, we're hiring certainly software engineers. Uh, you know, that's probably half of our company right now is software engineers. And that will continue to be a huge chunk to build all this stuff, new stuff and expanding old stuff. Uh, actuaries, data science types um, to continue building the, the models. Uh, sale, more frontline kind of insurance operations. So everything from sales and that's like outside sales, getting agencies, inside sales, you know, training agencies, whatnot, uh, inside service or success type uh, people who are, you know, solving problems for agents and get, keeping our, we have a 80 plus percent net promoter score and we got, we want to keep it that way. Um, we're building a, a small claims organization, um, starting to build that out. Um, and then, you know, just as we, you know, and then the other uh, kind of auxiliary functions of the organization, you know, across finance and, and talent, really it's everything you would expect from kind of a full stack company uh, we're, we're going after. Now this, and you're also building more of a remote type of workforce too, right? Yes, we, either, you know, we, we are a fully remote first company now. Um, we, in our early days, we were a little undecided about that. Like back in, you know, say January, we were about half remote and half of the people were in one of our hubs. We had a Boston hub, which was our main location. And then we had a small hub in Ann Arbor and we've gone full remote. And I think, we, we almost had to in a way because as you're building a company from 12 to, you know, 50 people or 100 people in the middle of COVID, it's, it's just really tough to only hire people in certain geographies and the hope that someday they'll go to some office that you don't yet even have there. Um, but I also think what we've learned is that it can work amazingly well. There's real advantages in, in the way that you can find talent in places where, you know, maybe there aren't a lot of big companies located and not a lot of uh you know, places for folks to go. Uh, and it's all the other, the other aspect of it that we've discovered is that being a hundred percent remote is a whole lot better than being 50% remote. Cause when you're a 50% remote, you know, it's like half the people are in the meeting and the other half are on the phone. And for the people on the phone, it's, or the video, it's, it's you know, it's strange and different. Whereas if everyone is just sort of video first, uh, it, everyone's on a more of an equal playing field. And I think you, you really engage and include more of the company uh, consistently. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, obviously with COVID, it's a trend that is only accelerated and it's, it'll be interesting to see how things evolve. Um, you know, I think it's, there will be hybrid models out there, but I, you know, remote's not going away. There's going to be, you know, a lot of, a lot of remote work being done, which is, uh, which is good. Yeah. And there, there are functions of our company, which at some point will will be necessarily local. You know, there's certain aspects of working with agents where, or certainly claims, for example, where you do want people on the ground in a particular location. So you can't say we're just never gonna have any, but I, I think you can be really careful about which functions, do you really need that for and which functions don't you? And then what are the intentional practices you use so that they you know, cross paths with each other on some cadence? So we talked about, you know, your decision to start a company and, you know, move on from Liberty Mutual, right? This massive, insurance company where you had a, an executive level position there. So that was, you know, a very risky decision yet. There's probably lots of other senior level executives in similar situations at large companies that are like, man, I, I should just go pursue this idea yet. Woo, that's a bad, like really risky to sit. Why would I do that? Why would I leave? So what advice would you give to other like executives that are kind of wrestling with that own decision of going to start something just because of that safety of the big mothership, to go off to the unknown. 
Yeah. I mean, I wish I could just say, oh, definitely do it no matter what. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm, I, I, I would say it's going to be harder than you think. Um, it, it's going to take longer than you think. So f- certainly make sure that you, you know, the worst thing is like having to be up at night worrying that my company's going to possibly fail, but also do I have enough like money to feed my family? And then what you really, if you, not everyone can do it, but if you're able to separate those decisions and, and give yourself some personal runway, that's really important because it will take longer. I'd say really think about, are you, are you really ready to have no net and to own something? Like very few people at a big company, in fact, almost nobody really owns something in the sense that like, no matter how well you think you're doing and other to look at your performance. If, if the thing you're working on fails, you're just out of a job. And like, that's rare at a big company. There's a few roles like that. Um, but usually something fails like, well, you did well, you know, let's, that's not true at a startup. It fails, you know, you're out of that job. So are you really ready for that? Um, I'd say be ready to be humbled. If you think you're going to walk in and you're going to get a lot of respect for this thing you did in the past, not true, which is fine. It can be fun to kind of break yourself down and then build back up. Um, you know, so you say, well, why would you ever do it? Um, and I think the, the flip side of those things is that it's, it's amazing. And um, if, it's, if it's what you're built to do, then you're not gonna be happy doing anything else. And if it's, you know, life, life is pretty short. So, you know, don't, I, I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in a, or some people get stuck in a job and just wake up and they're retiring. And, you know, it's, they never really consciously made some of the choices maybe they, they would have. And so you don't have that long in life to make choices that you, you know, that might be better for you. So. Because, so I'm, you know, former executive recruiter, you know, focused on VentureViz full time now, but, um, you know, I would tell people about the risk decisions. Like, if you've done a good job managing your career, you can always go back. I'm not saying the job would exist at Liberty Mutual anymore or one of those jobs in a large insurance company, because I'm sure they're very few and far between. But it's not like you would be unemployed. Like, you're, you built a, background and pedigree that keeps you employable might not be the exact same job, but it's not like you're going to be, you know, looking for a job for a long time and and wondering how you're going to feed your family. Yeah, that's true. And the other, the other related point is that, you know, I worked for 12 and a half years at Liberty as a senior executive as I was running the product organization. And yet, you know, starting my own insurance company has been, I've learned drastically more that, you know, over the last couple of years about what an insurance company really is and how the product really works. Even areas where I was theoretically a specialist at Liberty, there's things that I know now about it that are just much deeper than I, than I understood at that time. So I think you should be way more employable. Um, I feel like I would be a much, much better, you know, senior executive at a, at a big insurance company if I, if I chose to go back. Um, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just dreaming about that, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You're, building your skills for sure. And what about the raising the capital piece, right? So we talked a little bit about this throughout our conversation, but, you know, as a first time founder raising capital, like, you know, you talked about AVP you raised recently, but you also have, you know, PJC, Obvious Ventures, which is Ed Williams. I mean, there's other partners, but it's known because of he's, you know, one of the key players in that fund, Gradient Ventures. So, you know, you raise capital, you know, West Coast, East Coast, first time founder. So uh, what advice would you give to, to others on raising capital? Well, it certainly gets easier, I would say, you know, as your business, um, well, I mean, it's, it's, for us, it's gotten easier over time. It was very hard in the very early days because, you know, as we discussed earlier, we were starting something that was irreducibly complex and where it could easily have ended in absolutely zero, never get to market even if we hadn't built certain pieces of what we, what we needed to build. Um, so I think, 
but the advice that I would give people is to always know why you're raising the capital. And a good answer is not that it's a source of validation. So I, I don't know why it's so hard to not understand this when you're on the other side of it, when you're first starting a company, but you, you see raising capital as the goal and the validation. And so your first instinct in many cases is let's go raise some capital and let's get the deck and, and until you raise capital, you fail. And when you're on the flip side, you say, well, no, that's not the, that's not the goal at all. That's an enabler of things that are going to build an amazing business. I, you should definitely not raise capital if you, if you don't need to, right? I mean, most, many businesses need to, but, um, and it's so funny because everyone told me that in theory, when I was, you know, try, uh, experienced entrepreneurs would tell me that. And I, I said, yeah, I get it, but I didn't get it. <laughs> and now on the flip side, now I totally get it. And I'll have friends who are coming to me who are thinking about starting a business. They'll say, well, how much should I raise? And I'm like, the question doesn't compute. What are you, what are you talking about? Like, what, what business are you going to build? What, where do you want to get to? Then how much would you need to get there? And can you survive without raising money, et cetera? So anyway, don't treat it as a source of validation um, is, is the main advice I would give. I think having your, just, having your story as specific as possible is really important. I think when we first started out, we had this big like existential story. I was talking about, yeah, 40% administrative costs, and all these big things. So like, yeah, that's a big problem, but like, what are you actually doing about it? And so I think getting very specific about here's how we're going to solve it. Here's, you know, my, my way of thinking at least of how I see that there could be traction in this. Here's the, the experiments I'm going to do early on. Here are the risk points. Um, so having that story really clean, I would say is important as well. And, and the other thing, just certainly network. I mean, be, here's the thing, you have to be amazingly methodical about it. Start a spreadsheet, like update it all the time. It's your CRM of investors. You're gonna probably talk to hundreds of investors over your first couple of years. You cannot do it in your head. You must have an absolute system of when you follow up on an email, when you, you know, you, you have to be tracking at all times where you are with all investors you've ever met essentially. And just doing that, like just, creates the numbers game where you will eventually find some, some success. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a process you got to make sure you're on top of it and hopefully see it through fruition to the outcome of hopefully an investment. And like you said, it's not just a credibility, a badge of honor that yes, we're in TechCrunch because we raised money and we did it. No, the hard work actually begins now because you have the capital to go execute. Now you talked about building a remote first culture. Um, what advice would you give to others? Because I'm sure lots of companies are thinking the same thing, especially after this, uh, you know, the 2020 year uh, about interviewing and hiring remotely. Like what are some of the lessons learned that you've seen, you know, kind of, you know, instilling that type of uh, mentality? Yeah, it's, um, I think the biggest, you know, there's these huge advantages around being able to have this giant, you know, kind of talent pool to, to fish in. I think it's actually really important for people to hear that you are remote first. They may not ask because they, you know, you might be talking to someone and they're kind of wondering, well, is this just, is this all going to end? Am I going to have to move when, you know, COVID, when there's a vaccine for COVID or whatever? And um, I think being very clear, if you can, with people about what the their future will look like remotely. And we, we're able to give people the confidence and say, don't worry, we're a you know, fully remote company, your job will always be where you are. That's fine. That that goes a long way. I think um, the once people are inside the company, the general rule to me of running their company remotely is you just have to be more intentional about everything. And that's, you know, intentional about someone's, you know, the first few days of their onboarding, intentional about the meetings they are going to have that they might just naturally have, you, you know, you expect them to run into someone in the hallway, but that's not going to happen. There's, you know, someone it's not their first day, they're not going to they don't know how to reach out to people on Zoom and who should I schedule a meeting with, et cetera. So have a careful schedule for people. 
And then as time goes on, I think one of the things we do is we actually schedule what I would call like inefficient time. So we have some meetings or, that we'll do, you know, with a certain frequency where we just know that this is, you know, we're going to spend part of this time just kind of catching up with each other and that maybe we could look back and say, hey, are we wasting seven minutes a day talking about, you know, sports or whatever it is at the beginning of this daily meeting we have. But on the other hand, I bet that if we didn't do that, we would probably want to kill each other after about two months. And so I think making sure to schedule that kind of inefficient time that you would naturally find in a normal environment is is really important. You know, we, we like all people, we ex we're experimenting with different social, uh, you know, Zoom social practices. Some of them are working and, and some of them aren't. And I think some work for some people and some people it's like, well, why am I doing that? So, um, but the main thing is just showing people that you're committed to it. You're going to put in the effort that, that really goes a long way with the remote culture, I think. What about the, um, you know, the, the job seeker side? So what, what have you seen like advice, you know, like may, maybe doing all the interviews over Zoom is, uh, is new to a person? Like, so what should they be thinking about to increase their you know, level of success to, to hopefully, you know, land the, their ideal dream job? Well, yeah, I think um, the, I don't know that it's, change that much in terms of what I would when I what I look for when I'm having a conversation with someone I think the things that I, I really look for you know kind of the core values that I think just need in any role in our company you, you really need to have these values I, I look for you know certainly signs of um, curiosity are they you know no matter what the role are they the kind of person who sees something outside of their expectation and just kind of pass it on and says oh whatever I that could, because if they, you know, that could be, if they're on a fr for a frontline person, that could be like an error and, you know, something they've done in the system, but they just kind of leave it alone. If they're an actuary, they could say, oh, this data pattern, I just kind of, oh, that's just, I won't worry about that. You, you, the opposite would be to be curious about a task. Why did that happen? Let me talk to somebody in the appropriate way about that. I think that's just one of the top things, which relates heavily to sort of what I call ownership, meaning, you know, whatever the scope of your job, just really demonstrating that you will pull on the thread or, you know, work until it's at completion. I think it just applies across every level of a company. You know, it's not just the executives who need to own things. It's people at every level of the company need to really own within the scope of, of the job that they're owning. And, um, you know, I think people who can tell, give specific experiences of doing that, that's really powerful. They can say, hey, I, you know, I was working, I was doing this job. I was told to just do this, but then I saw this thing and I wondered, hmm, what, what, why is that? And is that something that's going to mess up the result I'm trying to achieve? And so I investigated it and I did this and I did it and I pursued it. And then we made, you know, this change. It could be a big change for the company, it could be a little change. People with those types of stories, I think are very powerful. Um, you know, people, the other thing in this environment, I think it's always, there's always like a net energy, in my opinion, that sort of comes out of a person at work. Well, they a net, everyone has their moments when they need to absorb energy from other people. They're having a bad day or they're stuck on a problem or they need help in some way. And especially when, someone's new at a company, they're going to be a net absorber of this energy. Um, but you also need to give back that energy to the world. When, when there's a problem that other people are having, you need to sometimes be kind of the optimistic person who says, oh, could we try this or could we try this? Part of that's being constructive when you have a problem and not just, you know, kind of giving up. And I think that's even more important. I don't know exactly why, but in a remote environment, because the I think it kind of tends to depress the entire energy in a situation, in a, in a meeting or, or whatnot, and an interview. What I, so I think being a demonstrating your ability to have that net outward positive contribution to the energy of a situation is, is more important even in a remote environment than it is in, a, in an in-person environment where maybe it comes across more clearly or there's more subtle energy gradations. I don't know. Very good point. Yeah. That's so being energetic. So true. Yeah. 
All right. So what do you like to do? Like you're very busy building a company. So that goes without saying, but when you do have time outside of building openly, what, what do you like to do? Well, so the same month that I quit my cushy corporate job, um, we also had our first son. Uh, so we, we now have two little kids. I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old and I used to have all kinds of hobbies. So I, I, I love to run, I love snowboarder, I'm a windsurfer, the, you know, the ballroom dancing thing. Um, I'm like a skunk works programmer and used to always be working on something. Now I have a startup and kids is pretty, pretty much the, uh, <laughs> where my, my, my world is and that, that's been plenty. Um, I do still run, so that's the one thing. It's, it, running is like liquid. You can just pour it into any time space and it's very efficient that way. So I, I can uh, find time to run. I, I love doing that to sort of, meditate on my thoughts or listen to something but uh that it's you know really a lot about keeping two little amazing kids alive and uh keeping or helping keep a, a startup alive are the, the two main goals right now that's awesome well as ty mentioned uh you know well as you mentioned you're hiring aggressively so if anyone's listening you can check out all their job listings on VentureFizz. go to venturefizz.com backslash openly and you'll see all their job listings and you know, they're, they're going to be hiring very aggressively. So make sure you check it out. Ty, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your backgrounds, all the great experience. And of course, what you're building up openly and all the other great advice for entrepreneurs to follow. Thank you, Keith. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.